coming to you from our Orange County Command Center here behind the Orange Curtain. Uh, Matthew Arnold, and, and this is No Nonsense Catholic. Welcome to the program. I got a lot to talk about today. Um, last week, we spoke a little bit about Cardinal Supich's letter, The Gift of Traditionis Custodes. I'm going to look at that some more. Also, speaking of Traditionis Custodes, is breaking news from Rome about the implementation of uh, a document there. And it is not good news for traditional Roman Catholics, uh, literally Roman Catholics, those who reside in the Diocese of Rome. And on a more edifying note, we will take a look at the true story behind the legendary sword in the stone. But first, the gospel from this past Sunday in the traditional calendar, which was the parable of the weeds and the wheat from Matthew 13. Our translation today taken from the New Catholic Bible. He then proposed another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his his field. While everyone was asleep, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, then went away. When the wheat sprouted and ripened, the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and asked, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, One of my enemies has done this. The servants then asked him, Do you want us to go and pull up the weeds? He replied, No, because in gathering the weeds, you might uproot the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together together until the harvest. At harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat into my barn. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, the 13th chapter of Matthew is called the Day of Parables, because Jesus tells the parable of the sower and the leaven, the mustard seed, the parable of the net, and of course the one we just read, the parable of the weeds and the wheat. And the interesting thing about this chapter is that our Lord himself tells us the reason he teaches with parables and offers the true interpretation. Uh, verses 34 and 35 say, Jesus told the crowds all, all these things in parables. Indeed, he never spoke to them except in parables. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth to speak in parables. I will proclaim what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And then uh, it says his disciples approached him and said, explain to us the the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sows good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the world. The son of man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all who cause sin and all whose deeds are evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, by the way, in the Douay translation, the weeds spoken of in this parable are called cockle, uh, which is also known as darnel, which looks very much like wheat until the ears appear, until they ripen. That's why the scripture says the weeds were only discovered after the wheat had sprouted and ripened. So God suffers evil in his church. Why? Well, number one, because he gave us a free will. And number two, that the sinner might have time uh, for conversion. Number three, that the just may be proved and, and gain more merit. And finally, that even the wicked may bring glory to God, because his holiness and his justice will be made manifest in them. Uh, as Father John Law said, the highest purpose of all created things is to give glory to God. 
and uh, by giving glory to God, men lay the foundations of their own happiness. If they fail to do this, then God is glorified by the exercise of his justice towards them. Also, when we say that God suffers evil in his church, we don't mean the teaching church, but in what we call the learning church, right? when some members of the church, instead of following her teaching, are at times led away by the, you know, the false maxims of the world. So what's evil in the members of the church comes from the devil and his allies and not from the church herself, right? Jesus, the, 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 the sower didn't sow bad seeds. It comes from his enemy. Uh, the church only sows good seed by her teaching and commandments, the various means of grace. Therefore, the church is holy and leads to holiness all those who obey her voice. Uh, also, in this explanation, Jesus makes it clear that the apostles and, and other preachers of the gospel shouldn't lose heart. Because even when men refuse to be converted, in spite of all their efforts to sow good seed, uh, and the parable of the weeds and the wheat show that the complete separation of evil from the good only takes place at the end of the world, at the general judgment. Right? The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will come to judge the living and the dead. That's the seventh article of the Apostles' Creed. Hell is the furnace into which the wicked are going to be cast, and uh, that's where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, the Scripture says. The just will come to the kingdom of their Father, that is, to heaven, and will be glorified in body and soul. In the words of our Lord from the Gospel, shining like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You see that God is our judge, and, and so we should take care also, and this is another important message underlying this, is that we should be careful when we judge others. Judge not, our Lord says, lest you be judged. Now, obviously, we're called upon to make judgments about the actions of other people all the time, but the Catholic way is to give the benefit of the doubt. An old seminary professor uh, told me the classic example. He says, if you see a brother seminarian on a park bench with a girl, you assume it's his sister. So giving the benefit of the doubt helps you avoid rash judgments. In the Imitation of Christ, Thomas Kempis says, turn thine eyes back upon thyself and see thou judge not the doings of others. See, that now there's a difference between a seminarian on a park bench uh, with a girl and a politician who claims to be a devout Catholic uh, but consistently and publicly promotes abortion or socialism or anything else that the church identifies as an intrinsic evil. To hold them accountable is not being judgmental. To admonish the sinner and instruct the ignorant, those are spiritual works of mercy. But most situations aren't so black and white, and hence the words of Thomas Akempis, we gain nothing by criticizing others, but are often mistaken and thereby offend God. I think it's especially true of social media, you know, where, where people post these knee-jerk reactions that are born of our, our biases and not from mature reflection. But it's also not new. I mean, back in the Middle Ages, Thomas Akempis says, we often judge a thing according to our own preference, and therefore our judgment is emotional rather than objective. He goes on, if you cling to your own reason or will rather than to humble obedience of Jesus Christ, you will only with difficulty become enlightened. For it is the will of God that we be perfectly subject to him, rising above our own reason and will by an ardent love. In other words, enlightenment doesn't come through your own intellect and will, but through loving obedience to the will of God. However, Thomas Akempis uh, goes on to say that to judge yourself and your own actions is always profitable. So the first principles in avoiding rash judgment are, number one, what your mom always told you. 
when you point a finger at another, there's three more pointing back at you. And number two, it's more spiritually fruitful to examine your own conscience rather than waste time judging others, because only God can see what's in a person's heart. Uh, in other words, God didn't give you a conscience in order to judge others, but to judge yourself. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not judge so that you in turn may not be judged, for you will be judged in the same way that you judge others, and the measure that you use for others will be used to measure you. Why do you take note of the splinter in your brother's eye, but not the wooden plank in your own? A Kempis tells us there's always going to be defects in others and in ourselves, which we cannot correct. Therefore, we must support, comfort, and assist one another, instructing and admonishing one another in all charity. And that's no nonsense. Okay, when we come back, the true story of the sword in the stone and more on Traditionis Custodes, that and even more when No Nonsense Catholic. Welcome back, back to No Nonsense Catholic. Everybody knows uh, about how the boy Arthur drew Excalibur from the stone to prove himself the true king of England. But is there a true story behind the legend? According to Geoffrey of Monmouth, the historical Arthur was a Romano-British Dux Bellorum, that is a warlord who defended uh, Dark Age Britain against Saxon invaders in the 5th or 6th centuries. And then uh, this historical figure became associated with even older Welsh tales of magic swords and cauldrons and whatnot. And that provided the basis for the 12th and 13th century stories of King Arthur. But there's nothing about swords and stones in, uh, in those original histories. Um, I've even encountered speculation uh, that the image of drawing a sword and a stone may come from Iron Age mythology concerning the origin of steel. Uh, symbolically representing the metallurgical process of removing the ore and smelting the metal, literally drawing a sword from the stone. Uh, and, of course, the very real power that would have accompanied the possession of such knowledge. But it's interesting to note that the original tale of Arthur and Excalibur, uh, the legends, uh, see him receiving the sword from the hands of the magical lady of the lake. Uh, the the store, sword and stone is a later development. It only appears in Arthurian literature after the year 1200. Uh, nor was there only one sword in the stone tale to appear at that time. Uh, Sir Galahad, the perfect knight and hero of the quest of the Holy Grail, also uh, miraculously draws a sword from a stone, uh, with not so much as a mention of Arthur's adventure, even though Arthur himself is present. So why the sudden appearance of two distinct episodes um, with that sword in the stone motif at the beginning of the 13th century? Well, I believe the answer lies in a genuine miracle that took place not in England, but in medieval Tuscany and involved a real knight who became the first saint to be raised to the altars of the church through an official process of canonization. Sir Galgano, also known by his Latin name Galganus, was an Italian knight. He was infamous for a violent temper and living a worldly life. That is, until the year 1180, when the archangel Michael appeared to Sir Galgano in a dream. And in the dream, the angel leads Galgano to a round chapel on the top of a hill. Outside the chapel are the 12 apostles who tell Galgano what God wants him to do and where God wants him to go. Now, like many before him, Sir Galgano at first ignored the vision. 
And then several days later, as he rode along his way, not unlike St. Paul, he's thrown from his horse. And once again, he hears this angelic voice, which leads him up a long, narrow path. And on the top of a hill called Mount Siepi, he again saw a vision of the circular church. And this time, our Lord and Our Lady were with the apostles. And as Yalgana reached the top, the vision faded, but the voice spoke again, commanding him to renounce the world and all worldly pleasures. Now, there's two versions of what happened next. In one, the reluctant would-be saint replies, for me, that would be as hard as splitting rocks with a sword. And uh, to prove his point, he proceeds to strike a great rock with his sword, where, to his surprise, it enters into the stone like a hot knife in butter. Uh, in another version, Galgano uh, converts without the, the complaint and strikes his sword into the ground as a makeshift cross. And then immediately the ground hardens around it to become a stone. Now, in any case, uh, um, the sword and the stone remains there to this day. And since the Enlightenment, uh, you know, many considered the sword to be a fake. But modern techniques have uh, dated the metal and the style of the sword to the late 11th, early 12th century, and have determined, in fact, that the full length of the sword's blade does indeed go down into the solid rock. And, and there's no natural explanation as to how it got there. Well, uh, Galgano took up residence on the hill, and stories spread about the hermit knight who renounced the world and prayed at an, an altar made of rock with a sword as a cross. It's a pretty romantic uh, image. And so the local folks started climbing up the hill to ask his advice and ask for his blessing, and soon there were miracles reported through the intercession of St. Galgano and his prayers. And then on December 3rd of 1181, just only a year after his conversion, Galgano shuffled off this mortal coil at uh, the age of 33. But his reputation uh, was already so great that bishops and abbots attended his funeral. And the next year, the local bishop gave Monticepi to Cistercian monks to build a shrine over Galgano's sword altar. And the canonization process for St. Galgano was opened by Pope Lucian III just four years later in 1185. The sworn testimonies of the miracles performed by the saint during his lifetime and through his intercession after his death are the oldest surviving acts of an official canonization process. So he is the first <coughs> officially canonized saint of the Catholic Church when he was uh, gone through the canonization process. The Liturgy of the Hours to this day celebrates St. Galgano uh, every year on the 30th of November. So according to local lore, there were many attempts to steal the sword, but no one could draw it from the stone. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> it should. Uh, also, there was reports that some who would be thieves, those who had tried to take the sword out, then met with untimely deaths, including one fellow who was torn apart by wolves. Um, anyway, by the year 1220, Cistercians had built a circular chapel, just like in his vision, around the sword and the stone and, and had attached a monastery. And the Sword Chapel has been the site of many miracles and remains a popular place of pilgrimage today. You can still go and see the sword, although it's under uh, you know, plexiglass at this point. Now, this story is like a perfect storm of my many interests. You know, First and foremost, it's the story of a medieval Catholic saint. And then it's also the story of the beginning of the canonization process. Uh, it also involves the Cistercian Order, which, of course, is the religious family of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who's my favorite saint and doctor of the church. And it was St. Bernard who was the first patron of the Knights Templar and who wrote a rule of life for these 
<clears throat> warrior monks, uh, as well as a popular work uh, called In Praise of the New Knighthood, in which he pretty much single-handedly invented the institution of Christian chivalry. Also, the, the circular chapel that the Cistercians built for St. Galgano was modeled after the, the tower chapels of the Knights Templar. See, unlike the square towers that were common in those days, uh, the round towers of the Templars didn't have any blind spots, and therefore they could be defended from any angle. And it's been suggested that those, uh, those round tower chapels of the Templars were also the inspiration for the round table in the stories of King Arthur. And so to the Arthurian connection, especially the quest for the Holy Grail. Uh, the quest was written by a Cistercian monk around the year of our Lord 1220. So that's right around the time that this chapel and around the Sword of the Stone was built. Um, the quest is an allegorical presentation of St. Bernard's spirituality, uh, which he called the Steps of Humility, which is really a, a practical guide for personal sanctification, uh, also known as the quest for Christian perfection, which uh, or what Vatican II called the universal call to holiness. Uh, the, the author invented the character of Saint, or Sir Galahad, who is the perfect knight, and he is a, a symbol of the Christian soul in the state of grace. He is, in the story, the son of Lancelot and Elaine, but he was raised by nuns in a cloister, right? And, and he's without sin. He says in Tennyson, he says, my strength is as the strength of ten because my heart is pure. And ultimately, um, he's knighted by his father, Sir Lancelot, and then prepares to visit the court of King Arthur. And it's on the Feast of Pentecost, right? And a, a lot of these Arthurian tales um, revolve around feasts of the church. Uh, on the Feast of Pentecost, a great stone, which looked like it was made from red marble, appeared floating on the river uh, outside of Camelot. And in the stone was a beautiful sword emblazoned with the words, no one shall take me away, but he to whom I belong. I will hang only by the side of the best knight in the world. Now, Arthur tells Lancelot, well, the sword is surely yours. But Lancelot, who's aware of his sinfulness, you know, he's in love with Queen Guinevere. He refuses to even try. Uh, and Arthur's disappointed. So he commands uh, Sir Gawain or Gawain to attempt the sword. And he does only to be uh, struck with a grievous wound. Right. So that's kind of like the sword of Galgano, where the people who try and take it out uh, pay a price. And then finally, Percival, uh, by order of the king, also tries and fails. And then they hear Holy Mass and go back to the round table for the holiday feast. And, and it's at that point that Galahad arrives, all clad in red armor, but without sword or shield. And when he hears of the miraculous sword in the stone, he says, I will try to take the sword and place it in my sheath, for it is empty. Long story short, he easily draws the sword out of the stone. And Arthur says, God has sent you the sword. Now he will send you a shield as well, which he does later, a white shield with a red cross like the Templars. Big surprise. Then finally, when they sit down to the feast, the Holy Grail appears on a shaft of light and then just as suddenly vanishes, hence the quest of the Holy Grail. Now, the symbolism here is fairly obvious. Um, Galahad's knighting by his father represents the sacrament of confirmation. You know, because it's in the sacrament of confirmation that we become soldiers for Christ. His armor on the Feast of Pentecost and the, the block of marble and the grail itself are all described as being the color red. His armor is red. The marble is red. The Holy Grail is red, which is actually consistent with um, the, the cup that is believed to have been the one used by Christ at the Last Supper. 
And, uh, of course, the color red represents the Holy Spirit and the, the, the tongues of fire that came over the apostles uh, at Pentecost. So that's all connected as well. And, and then the, the, the sword that he receives, the vision of the grail, um, um, represent the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we receive, each one of us receives in confirmation, which is like your own personal Pentecost. And then, of course, the Holy Eucharist um, in the quest, it's revealed to, um, or the Holy Grail is revealed to represent the Holy Eucharist. It is kind of the pinnacle of spiritual perfection. And there's a lot more, of course, it's a whole long book. But the point is that while it is useful to know uh, something about that old Celtic substrata underlying the tales of King Arthur, the stories uh, of King Arthur are not dark age. They're medieval. They're not pagan. They are thoroughly Christian. And so is their audience. And we see that, um, you know, popular culture influenced the way those stories were presented, including, um, you know, the ideas about chivalry that came from the Knights Templar and even the shape of their towers. And, of course, this wonderful story about St. Galgano and the sword in the stone. You know, um, his sword, even his name are the real-life inspiration for the fictional character of Sir Galahad, who is this nightly seeker of spiritual perfection, uh, this, um, this Catholic hero who is called to answer, you know, the, the universal call to holiness, as we are all called to be. And that is no nonsense. Uh, before we move on, while, I, while I've still got you here, I want to take a moment to uh, remind you that coming up in January, it's going to be January of next year, 2021 is almost over, if you can believe it. Uh, January of next year on the weekend of the uh, 28th and 29th, I believe. Or is it 28th and 29th or 29th and 30th? Who am I talking to? I'm alone here. <laughs> anyway, go to our, this is a good excuse to go to the website, vmpr.org. You can find out all about our spiritual conference, uh, our spiritual warfare conference. Father Chad Rippinger is going to be there, our own Jesse Romero, uh, the guys from Libra Cristo. It's going to be a big event. So you want to register now because space is limited and it's filling up fast. Okay, back with more right after this on Virgin's Most Powerful Radio. I'm Matthew Arnold, and this is No Nonsense Catholic. Okay, did a quick bit of research. The Spiritual Warfare Conference is January 29th and 30th. So a two-day conference this year. And uh, again, I reiterate, if you are interested in going, you should uh, register uh, immediately, if not sooner, because it is filling up quick. And uh, that's this coming January. So you can call us, uh, call the office at 877-526-2151 or just visit vmpr.org. Okay, last week I shared a bit from Cardinal Supich's, uh, Cardinal Supich of Chicago, his letter, The Gift of Traditionis Custodes. It was a, uh, a letter written to his diocese and the, the clergy and people of his diocese of Chicago. And in he makes the assertion um, that uh, following Pope Francis and Traditionis Custodes, uh, he makes the assertion that Vatican II called for a new order of the Mass. In fact, that, that was the chief reform. But um, it did not. I mean, you can, uh, this is, I talked about this last week, you can read Sacrosanctum Concilium until your eyes bleed, and you will not find a mandate to impose a new order of the Mass. 
On the contrary, as I pointed out in some detail last week, so you can go to the archive and check it out, uh, it, uh, Vatican II, Sacrosanctum Concilium, called for a retention, and in fact, in some cases, a restoration, uh, where they'd fallen into disuse of such things as Gregorian chant and sacred polyphony. Furthermore, it stipulated that the, that the faithful were to be able to say or sing in Latin the parts of the Mass that are proper to them. So, for example, the responses in the Gloria and the Credo, uh, the Sanctus, the Agnus Dei. Uh, Vatican II expected all of the Catholic laity to be able to go to Latin Mass and respond in Latin and, and, and actively participate in Latin, although we know that no serious attempt was ever made to do that. And, and while Vatican II says it's permissible to make use of vernacular translations, it also specifically says Latin was to be retained in the Latin rite. Uh, in fact, the normative or typical edition of the New Order of the Mass is the one in Latin. But the good cardinal makes some other kind of rather strange assertions. Uh, for example, he says, in 1983, Pope John Paul II reformed the Code of Canon Law of 1917 in order to ensure that church law conformed to the teachings of the Second Vatican Council. Likewise, the saintly pope in 1993, it was actually 1992, but okay, uh, in 1993, he says, reformed the catechism of the Catholic Church, again, for the purpose of bringing it up to date in view of the theological insights of the council. With the reforms of the code and the catechism, the church left behind their earlier forms. You see where he's going with this. No one would think of arguing that the earlier forms of the code or the catechism could still be used simply because the word reform means something. And so it has to mean something with regard to the liturgical reform. In other words, he's saying, uh, you know, that, that since the new mass is a reform of the old mass and the old mass is therefore obsolete, like the old code or, or the old catechisms. But, you know, d does that coincide with what John Paul II himself said about the new catechism, for example? See, in the Apostolic Constitution, Fidei Depositum, the deposit of faith, John Paul said that the new catechism was, quote, not intended to replace the local catechisms duly approved by the ecclesiastical authorities, the diocesan bishops, and the Episcopal conferences, especially if they've been approved by the Apostolic See. So to borrow his, uh, his description, the saintly pope specifically states that he did not intend for the 1992 Catechism of the Catholic Church to replace older catechisms, like the Roman Catechism or the Penny Catechism or the Baltimore Catechism. What John Paul II said is that, uh, John Paul II, <laughs> what St. John Paul II said is that the new catechism is, quote, a valid and legitimate instrument from ecclesiastical communion and a sure norm for teaching the faith. But by no means is it the only such instrument or the only norm. And this quote is not from some esoteric document uh, gathering dust someplace in the Vatican. You will find the Apostolic Constitution Fidei deposited uh, published at the beginning of the Catechism. You don't have to go, you don't have to go looking very far. <clears throat> Pardon me. Likewise, Cardinal Ratzinger, when he was head of the CDF, wrote a rather comprehensive document back in 2002, uh, which was entitled or subtitled the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 10 years since its publication. Right? It was originally published in 92, and he wrote this 10 years uh, down the line. And you can read it for yourself at the Vatican website. But in his conclusion, and it's, you know, he, he talks about all these different things, but he concludes by saying, and, and listen, because this is important, those who search for a new theological system in the catechism 
or for surprising new hypotheses, will be disappointed. That is not the concern of the Catechism. Drawing from sacred scripture and the richness of tradition and inspired by the Second Vatican Council, it offers an organic vision of the entirety of the Catholic faith. So, in other words, <clears throat> the Catholic faith before Vatican II and the Catholic faith after the Vatican II is the same Catholic faith. You know, the next year, uh, when the compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church came out, uh, the future Pope, uh, Pope Benedict XVI was asked the question, uh, uh, the Catechism of St. Pius X con uh, continues to have its admirers still today. Will it be considered definitively surpassed with the publication of the compendium? All right, so he's asking this specific question. This question. Does the compendium now uh, just uh, wipe out the, the old catechism of uh, St. Pius X? And his reply uh, was, quote, whereas ways of transmitting the contents of the faith can change, the faith as such is always the same. Hence, the catechism of St. Pius X always preserves its value. He goes on to say that this doesn't make the compendium superfluous. But his answer harkens back to what Pope Paul VI said about catechism. He said methods change, and that's necessary, but the catechism remains the most important, irreplaceable, and decisive means of Christian education because, as the Council said, and then quotes Vatican II, it gives clarity and rigor to faith, nourishes a life lived according to the Spirit of Christ, leads to a knowing and active participation in the liturgical mystery, and inspires apostolic action. Now that's high praise from Vatican II and the Pope of Vatican II, but it was not praise for the new catechism of the Catholic Church, which wouldn't be written for decades, uh, you know, until decades after the Council. And that document, Gravissimum Educationis, that he was quoting from. So the Catholic uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, the compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, do not represent some reformed vision of the faith, you know, that make the earlier catechisms obsolete. Likewise, the new order of the Mass is not really a reformation of the traditional Mass that replaces it and renders it obsolete. It is, as the name suggests, a new order of the Mass. Hence, Pope Benedict XVI was very clear about his principal reason for issuing Samorum Pontificum and the letter to the bishops that accompanied it. Because, you know, again, you've got a lot of high-placed churchmen saying, okay, the, the, the old mass was abrogated and, or, and um, you know, Samorum Pontificum and, and Ecclesia Dei, that was just for the Pius X. That's not for the church at large. And, and he, but what did Ratzinger say? What did Pope Benedict say? He says, I now come to the positive reason which motivated my decision to issue this motu proprio, the one that liberated the traditional mass. He said, it is a matter of coming to an interior reconciliation in the heart of the church. What earlier generations held as sacred remains sacred and great for us too, and cannot all of a sudden be for entirely forbidden or even considered harmful. It behooves all of us to preserve the riches which have developed in the church's faith and prayer and to give them their proper place. And yet here, Cardinal Supic uh, is repeating this, this false assertion, I mean, to be blunt, that the sole purpose of Samarum Pontificum was the reconciliation of, of SSPX. You know, on Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Bar Emeritus Benedict XVI, put out a book um, a couple of years ago called Last Testament in his own words. 
kind of like this final interview. And on page 220 or 202, he responds to this claim that the Latin Mass was, you know, reauthorized by him as a concession to the SSPX. He says, and I quote, that is absolutely false. For me, what is important is the unity of the church with itself in its interior, <clears throat> with its past, that that which was holy for her before should not in any way be evil now. And as the title of the book implies, those are his own words. And they really leave no doubt whatever about uh, Benedict XVI's intentions. And, and there's more, but there's they're just mostly points that I've covered before about uh, the Pope's kind of unfortunate motu proprio. But as a final note, Cardinal Supic gives some pastoral advice to the priests of his diocese. Number one, that they need, and I'm quoting, accompany people in coming to an understanding of the link between the way we worship and what we believe. Well, I can assure Cardinal Supic that traditional Catholics are well aware of the axiom lex arandi, lex credendi. It is, in fact, precisely a lively appreciation of the quote, link between the way we worship and what we believe, as he says, that has brought and continues to bring so many Catholics to the traditional liturgy. Because it you know, better represents, at least in their opinion, what the church really teaches. And in the same vein, he goes on to suggest that, that pastors should uh, possibly even visit with the faithful, this is, quote, with the faithful who have regularly attended Mass and celebrated sacraments with the earlier rituals to help them understand the essential principles of renewal called for in the Second Vatican Council. And, and this, of course, is as misguided as, as it is condescending, because the simple fact is that many Catholics who assist at the traditional Latin Mass today, and I dare say and many still are, uh, staunch defenders of the essential principles of renewal called for in the Second Vatican Council. It's precisely because so many of these essential principles were ignored by the liturgical reformers or, or betrayed by relentless liturgical abuse that is behind uh, so many solid Orthodox JP2 We Love You Catholics abandoning the new order for the traditional Latin Mass in the first place. Now, here's what Benedict XVI told the bishops, including the then Bishop of Rapid City, His Excellency Blaise Supic, and I quote, Many people who clearly accepted the binding character of the Second Vatican Council and were faithful to the popes and bishops, nevertheless also desired to recover the form of sacred liturgy that was dear to them. And he told us why as well. And we're going to look at that when we come back. Hey, you are listening to No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I am your host, Matthew Arnold. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We were talking before the break about um, the letter from um, Cardinal Supic about uh, how to implement traditionis custodis, talking to his priests. And he uh, told them that uh, uh, one of the things they could do is to uh, talk to traditional Catholics to, to try and help them to understand the essential principles of renewal from the Second Vatican Council, what was called for. And um, 
and I, I was saying that, you know, the reason so many solid Orthodox JP2, we love you Catholics, uh, have embraced the traditional mass in the first place is precisely because so many of the essential principles of Vatican II were ignored uh, in the in the church in the last 50 years. And, and again, uh, this is what Benedict XVI told the bishops, including um, Blaise Subich, when he was His Excellency Blaise Subich, Bishop of Rapid City. What he said, um, and I'll go back, many people who clearly accepted the binding character of the Second Vatican Council and were faithful to the Pope and the bishops, nonetheless also desired to recover the form of sacred liturgy that was dear to them. This occurred above all because in many places, celebrations were not faithful to the prescriptions of the new missal, but the latter was actually understood as authorizing or even requiring creativity, which frequently led to deformations of the liturgy which were hard to bear. He says, I am speaking from experience since I too lived through that period with all its hopes and confusion. I've seen how arbitrary deformations of the liturgy caused deep pain to individuals totally rooted in the faith of the church. Uh, it's not because we don't know what Vatican II says that we're upset. It's because we do know. Now, his eminence goes on to say that uh, his this proposed clerical accompaniment, quote, must also involve helping people appreciate how the Reformed Mass introduces them to a greater use of scripture and prayers from the Roman tradition, as well as an updated liturgical calendar of feasts that includes recently canonized saints. Now, as far as new feasts goes, uh, Benedict XVI mentioned that in Samorum Pontificum. He just kind of kicked it down the road. He said he envisioned a time when they would be able to incorporate the new feasts into the traditional Mass. Now, in regards to Scripture, Sacrosanctum Concilium did call for the liturgical Scripture readings to be, and I quote, more varied, and said, quoting again, the treasures of the Bible are to be opened up more lavishly. Okay. Consequently, new Bible readings were added to the Missal. And many Catholics, myself included, uh, have long considered that uh, this increased proportion of biblical readings to be one of the genuine fruits of the liturgical renewal, liturgical renewal, sorry, rented lips. Uh, in the Old Rite, only about 1% of the Old Testament and a little over 16% of the New Testament was read at Mass. And in the, the Novus Ordo, we got 13.5% uh, of the Old Testament and 71.5% of the New so this, it's, that is a big increase. And how they do it? Well, by adding Old Testament readings to Sundays and major feast days, by giving each weekday its own unique reading, and then replacing the traditional yearly cycle of readings on Sundays with a new three-year cycle, A, B, and C, and then a new two-year cycle for the weekdays. Now, considering that, that many of the prayers of the Mass are also based on biblical texts, you know, the, the Sanctus, the Gloria, the Agnus Dei, the Domini non sum dignus, uh, etc. It is the great boast of the Novus Ordo liturgy that a Catholic who um, who makes his obligation and goes to Mass every Sunday um, appears pretty much uh, all the important parts of the Bible proclaimed on Sundays over the course of that three years. And yet there are readings that were in the old calendar that are conspicuously missing from the new. For example, even with all this added scripture, the following verse does not appear anywhere in the new liturgy, not in the new mass or even the new office. And that's 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. All right, and that verse appears twice in the old mass. Now, is there any wonder 
why so many Catholics today don't believe in the real presence anymore. You know, and as regards greater use of the prayers from the Roman tradition, the collects and the other the, the orations of the mass were mercilessly edited uh, uh, by concilium, by, you know, the, the, the commission that put together the new mass. Of the 1,182 orations in the 1962 Missal, 760 of them were dropped entirely. And over the half of the remaining 422, um, half of them were, were uh, severely edited, which leaves you, in, in other words, less than 20% of the old orations actually survived in the new Mass. And let's take, let's take an example of one that did survive. This is the, uh, the colic from the Feast of St. George. And here's the traditional prayer. O God, who didst grant to St. George strength and constancy in the various torments which he sustained for our holy faith, we beseech thee to preserve through his intercession our faith from wavering and doubt, so that we may serve thee with a sincere heart faithfully unto death. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. And here's the Novus Ordo version. O Lord, we acclaim your might and humbly pray. Just as St. George imitated the Lord's passion, so let him now come to the aid of our weakness. Okay, that's it. Now, technically, there's nothing wrong with a new collect, but, you know, with richness like that, who needs poverty? And then finally, Cardinal Stupich says, accompaniment may also mean creatively including in the mass, reformed by the council, right, so the new order, elements which have found, which people have found nourishing in celebrating the earlier form of the mass, which has already been an option. For example, reverent movement and gestures, use of Gregorian chant, Latin and incense, extended periods of silence within the liturgy. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, really, considering that what Cardinal Supic would call creative inclusion of elements which people have found nourishing in the old mass, which he says were already an option. Uh, when, of course, you know, Gregorian chant and Latin and incense and, and reverent gestures and reverent silence, lots more kneeling and so forth, uh, these things are the norm. Uh, for the Novus Ordo, as well as for the traditional Latin Mass. See, the absence of, of silence and incense and the use of the vernacular and pop music hymns, those are the options. Okay. Although credit where credit's due, I, I suspect his eminence may be gently correcting his brother in the episcopate, uh, the Costa Rican bishop of Alajuela, who banned the celebration of the Novus Ordo in Latin, <laughs> apparently without realizing that that's the norm of the church. Uh, and now we have this breaking news. The Cardinal Vicar of the Diocese of Rome just released his norms for the implementation of Traditionis Custodes there, which forbids all traditional sacramental rites except the Mass of 62. Now, that's the sacraments and sacramentals, right? It outlaws the traditional Easter Triduum. So no traditional Mass on Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, or Easter in Rome. Also, the Roman clerics who currently celebrate the traditional Latin Mass can only continue to do so if they receive written permission from the vicar. Now, if you've ever wondered what clericalism is, this is a good example. Uh, the decree forbids clergy, I mean, even the FSSP in Rome, uh, for example, from doing baptisms in the old rite, or hearing confessions in the old rite, or even giving the traditional last rites. And, and since it pro prohibits everything but the old mass, um, sacraments and sacramentals. Technically, that means no traditional blessings, no, no exorcisms in the old rite. You know, on, on Facebook this morning, Dr. Kuznevsky suggested there's something comical about the decree. He says, you know, how's it going to be enforced? Well, will the vicariate send spies to the baptismal fonts? 
you know, uh, they wiretap the confessionals to find out if priests are in compliance with the, the Montinian form, as he calls it. You know, will the, will the vicariate appoint a companion to monitor the priest as he assists a dying man so that he doesn't use the, you know, uh, you know the old right of extreme unction? You know, I, I, I have said more than once that it's entirely possible today to be an adult Catholic who who's never heard the Roman canon, uh, also known as Eucharistic prayer number one. Or to have never assisted at a, a new mass is celebrated according to the normative form found in the general instruction, right? In Latin, with the priest facing the altar, right? And it's interesting to me, I, I, I'm willing to bet that you are among the modern Catholics who have never gone to confession according to the reformed Novus Ordo rite of penance, or even knew that there was one. Now, sure, the priest will uh, pronounce the absolution according to the new formula, but did you even know there was a Novus Ordo rite of confession? I've only ever experienced it once. I was at my parish church, and confessions seemed to be taken a lot longer than usual. And turns out that a bishop emeritus of the diocese, uh, who was a dyed-in-the-wool Vatican II liberal, was hearing confessions at our church that day. And to tell you the truth, when I went into the confessional, I was kind of excited. Uh, for one thing, His Excellency was vested in an alb as well as a stole, which the new art requires, by the way. And the only reason I knew what to do when he started into the, the Novus Order rite of penance is because I was a very zealous recent convert who went into the confession with a prayer book that included the rite uh, right after the examination of conscience. Now, I'd read it over a number of times, but I wasn't taught about it in RCIA. None of my Catholic friends knew anything about a new order of the sacrament of penance. And so if you've never experienced it, uh, here it is. Uh, it begins with the reception of the penitent. Uh, the priest uh, makes sign of the cross, name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, may the grace of the Holy Spirit fill your heart with light, that you may confess your sins with loving trust, and come to know that God is merciful. And the penitent responds, amen. And then there's the reading of the word of God uh, from Mark chapter 1. Uh, of course, it being the Novus Order, there's, there's uh, options. So it says another gospel may be uh, used, another reading may be used. And only then do you get around you know, after he reads from the Bible, then you get around to the confession of sins and he gives you your penance. And then it says you uh, <clears throat> express your sorrow for sins in these or similar words. And it has kind of a uh, an unfamiliar act of contrition, right? And then followed by the absolution, which we all, you know, know and expect. God the Father of mercies through the death and resurrection of his son, etc., etc. I absolve you from your sins. But then there's the what's called the proclamation of praise of God and dismissal, right? There's stuff after that where the priest then finally says, give thanks to the Lord. He is good. And the penitent responds, his mercy endures forever. Now in 30 years of going to confession, I've only ever experienced that once. And I imagine that very many Catholics have never experienced it. So why even bring this up? Well, I guess my point is that today's liberal clergy don't seem to care very much about the proper celebration celebration of the new liturgical rites, just so long as nobody gets to celebrate the traditional ones. And that flies in the face of what Scripture says about liturgy in, in 1 Corinthians. It's, Paul says, what I received from the Lord, I handed on to you. And what Catholics have been receiving and handing on for centuries, what, what always and everywhere has been considered the most holy thing this side of heaven, is suddenly the most forbidden. So I guess the question is, what are they so afraid of? And that's no nonsense. All right. Thank you so much for being with us this week. I'm Matthew Arnold here for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and we will be back uh, next Wednesday for 
Our next live broadcast, of course, the archive is up on vmpr.org and all of your favorite podcast platforms. So lots of ways to listen to the programs. I encourage you to listen to all of them. We also have a new program starting up uh, with Barbara McWiggin called um, The Fight for Life. And uh, Bishop Strickland, our Jesse and Terry, all of that great stuff. So please don't be afraid to visit vmpr.org. Click on the donate button if you can help us out. And in the meantime, please keep us in your prayers and we'll do the same. May God richly bless you and your family.